Good morning. Well, I'm enjoying. Uh, last Sunday we were in Habakkuk nine, uh, 319, and I'm calling these uh, life verses because I'm taking a look at uh, three, just three verses. There are so many more, but just three verses that have had a very meaningful, significant influence on my life and sharing them with you. Uh, last Sunday, uh, Habakkuk 3.19, today, 1 John 2.10, next Sunday, Romans 12, 1 and 2, so you can be working ahead. I, I just imagine that you'll all be totally reformed after not only reading but reflecting on these uh, three important verses that have played such a profound uh, place in my life. How do they function? I want to just take a a real quick moment and say that God's truth is focused on my life through these verses in a way that it, it, it steers me, you know, like steering a car. It it, it helps me regulate and manage my emotional and spiritual life. It, it helps move me toward Christ. Now, I'm saying me a lot, and it's not all about me. In fact, the verses do a work in me so that I get my eyes off of myself. They turn my attention to the Lord in dependence and trust and in uh, obedience to Him. And so it's, you know, I, I just, I didn't say this last service. I suppose this is kind of a bonus for you. But I find that God's truth always is kind of a double whammy. I mean, it's good for me and it's good for what God does for others through me. And, and that's a beautiful thing. Let's look at First John. I hope you have your New Testament open to John's epistle, the first one, chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. This verse changed my life. Uh, I mean, it was just a, it was a step up or a step in the right direction. There's a significant, I can document, so to speak, in my heart, mind, and experience. Uh, the, the occasion, although I'd read the verse, I'd read 1 John 2.10 before, it was on this occasion under this set of circumstances at this point in my life. And I happened to be living in South San Francisco and... We, I was speaking on First John, we got to this, and it was kind of like all the pieces really kind of came together for me. Love, lo- loving as God wants me to love, as God wants you to love, was certainly a, an influential primary part of my life and remains so, and, and some of you know my story about that. But on this occasion... Um, we, Shelley and I, we were over in South San Francisco, and um, I was a pastor, a college instructor teaching uh, college courses, husband to Shelley, father uh, of two children, um, in my early 30s, yada, 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 
Why do I say that? Well, because I want you to understand that in the eyes of others, I was probably uh, doing real good, you know. I, I, there might have been some that even admired me or looked up to me. Certainly, I thought I could be confused or <laughs> deceived, but uh, I thought people liked me and respected me. I know one guy admired me. I, he was a student of mine when we were still in Modesto, and he followed me to South San Francisco to serve there with me, under me, and uh, we, we served together for several years. Um, but as I said, the reason I mention that is, is this. Whatever admiration others may have had for me, that was not how I saw myself. It's very important you understand that. Uh, there were things uh, going on inside of me, things that I struggled with, um, a lack of self-worth, uh, feelings of self-doubt and not measuring up uh, to standards, standards of God, standards of others. Um, I worried probably a little too much about what others thought of me. And um, I was something of a people pleaser. And if you know anything about being a little bit of a people pleaser, it's very hard to say no. And so sometimes you're living a life of kind of frustration and regret because you're always saying yes to everything when you really don't have the capacity to be responsible to all the yeses that you utter. Um, yeah, I suppose I had difficulty saying no to just about everybody, although sometimes I found it easy to say no to Shelley because she was locked in, you know. <laughs> but I do, it does bring to mind a, an occasion, I don't know if Shelley will remember it, but it was probably, I think it was our first year of marriage, I can remember the situation, the sunny afternoon, and uh, Shelley was uh, preparing, for the first time, grilled cheese sandwiches. And it was on this occasion that when the grilled cheese sandwiches um, were observed uh, that I began to kind of share with her how I thought she should cook the grilled cheese sandwiches because I liked the way my mom cooked the grilled cheese sandwiches. And... And Shelley said to me, not right away, but after some debate, Shelley said, you are hypersensitive. And to, see, to me, that was, I don't think I actually said it, but inside it was like, oh, the truth comes out. All this time you thought I was hypersensitive, not just sensitive, but hypersensitive. And well, you see, it, it didn't matter to me whether there was truth in that or not. It was all about what she thinks about me. And you know what? It devastated me. Well, I mean, look, 42 years later, and I still remember it. Look, it was uh, at that very point as I was writing 
these thoughts down on Thursday that I decided to look up the word hypersensitive. So I googled hypersensitive. And do you know what I found? A whole slew of articles. And the first thing I discovered is hypersensitive is out of fashion. Nobody says you're hypersensitive anymore. So don't do that. Now there's a new word. It's highly sensitive people. And it's even an acronym. It's a condition. H-S-P. And I began to read the articles. The first article I read was 22 signs you're a highly sensitive person. 22 signs. And I began reading this article, and you know, I got through one, two, three, and I was kind of doing an eye roll, you know what I mean? That was kind of my attitude. And then I kept reading, and I get down to like sign 18. And I, it, it really has now hit me. I'm a highly sensitive person. <laughs> the next article was 11 things everyone gets wrong about highly sensitive people. And then the third one was, are you too sensitive? Well, like I said, I'm reading these articles and... Um, First of all, I'm not telling you about this because I want to focus on the many flattering qualities of a person with HSP or a highly sensitive per person, um, such as uh, HSP people are creative. Uh, HSP people are artistic. HSP people make good leaders, great leaders. Some of our great leaders have... Did I mention that Jesus was HSP? <laughs> I'm just kidding about that. No, what did attract my attention was the fact that there were kind of personal testimonies and vocalizations of what people have experienced. One person um, said, my feelings get hurt easily. And another person said, my brain is always looking for rejection. Now, why do I tell you this? Well, you may not be an HSP, lucky enough to be, obviously, but you may not be HSP, but I'm trying to show you that on the outside, you know, we can, we can be a pastor, we can be a, a college instructor, a college-level instructor. Uh, we could even be possibly admired and appear to have it all together, uh, be a husband, uh, you know, parent, and yet inside there can be issues. There can be things that we haven't worked out. And not only was I, what I want you to understand is when this verse started to work on my heart, not only was I HSP, but I was EAP. And you all know what EAP is, don't you? An easily angered person. So I was really quite a mess, you see. And I hope that that helps you to understand that God does things, and will do, I believe, things in your heart, just as he did in mine, if I can open some of the beautiful and dynamic power 
of, of what God is telling us in 1 John 2.10. By the way, that was quite a while ago, so I want you, I don't bite. I don't bite. You don't have to be hyper. You don't have to pamper me. I'm much better. Now, 1 John 2.10 caused me to see some things, and I want to just quickly walk through the verse and highlight three things. First, when we read the words, he who loves his brother dwells in the light, we need to understand that the, the words, his brother, are equivalent to his neighbor. Um, the background of this verse, and we, we see this even in uh, verse uh, 7, 8, and 9, is the old commandment, which is also a new commandment. Have you ever read that and wondered what that's all about? Well, that's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. But you see, it's now new in an incredible way because of Jesus Christ, his ministry, his life, death, and resurrection. And that's why the darkness is passing, he says, and the light is increasingly dawning and becoming brighter. There, there's, we're in a new kind of era because of Jesus Christ, and it gives new dimension and significance uh, to this great commandment, which is both old and yet new. When we think of that commandment, the second part of it is very important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? And the man who, who happened to ask Jesus was a lawyer, not a civil attorney who handles civil cases, but a religious attorney, an attorney of God's law. And when he asks that question, it is a rather big deal. And Jesus answered the question, which was a question of the interpretation of Scripture, with Scripture, uh, bringing to bear that neighbor is not just like my family or other Christians, it's anyone who is near and approximate. So when John here, drawing upon the meaning and bringing out the application of what God has done in the meaning of this great command, the command of God, as he elaborates on it, when he says, Whoever, boy or girl, young or old, whoever loves his brother, his brother has to do with the approximate one, the near one. The people in our lives, the people that we come in contact with. Just as when Jesus defined the neighbor in Luke chapter 10, for example, and went on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. The impact and point of that was that you can fulfill the law even if you're not a Jew, and it can be a complete stranger. And so it is, we have this powerful, powerful truth that when we love, we are abiding, abiding in the, in the light. When you love as Jesus said to his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. When we're loving, 
one another, we are, as it says in chapter 2, verse 6, just four verses back, we are, let me read it to you. Verse 6 says, whoever says he abides in him, which would be a parallel of abiding in the light, whoever says he abides in him, that is Jesus Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Isn't that interesting? The conjunction of abiding and walking. You see, abiding in the light is spatial language. That is, if you're in the dark and someone says, get in the light, you move out of the dark into the light. And when you're in the light, you are kind of geographically and spatially located in the light. A space that is characterized by light. But what John is talking about is not just something physical and spatial. He's talking about relationship. He's talking about relationship. Even as verse 6 prepares us to understand. If you abide in him, you're walking as he walked. How did he walk? In love. His yoke, his teacher's yoke was the great commandment. The heart of all he taught was love. In fact, the whole New Testament and its many references, I mean, it put the word love, a new word, agape, on the map in history. And why? Because of what Jesus did. He epitomizes love, and he makes it iconic not to diminish it by even trying to elevate it by using that word, makes it iconic in his death, his sacrificial death, laying down his life for us. The ultimate example, demonstration, proof of love. And so his love is cross-shaped love. Christian love isn't Christian love unless it's cross-shaped love. That is a high bar. That is a gold standard. It is a tall order. But it is the ideal that inspires us, that moves us. That Why? Because it has touched us. It has drawn us into relationship with God and where our sins are not held against us. Our faults, our form, our lack of style, our inability to be gold medal athletes. No matter who we are or what we are, that love is so great that we belong. And thus it captures the great imagination of our hearts. And it epitomizes it. And that's what he's talking about here. When we love our near brother or sister, our neighbor, the person in the supermarket, the, the, the woman who cuts us off on the freeway. I had to say women because it's not often the case, but they're, they're out there too. And some of them, some of them are crazy fast. I'm trying to just kind of whimsically 
appeal to those difficult situations that catch us off guard, but those are all occasions, near and far, that meet us in which we are called to love, fulfilling God's commandment, and showing in that that we are abiding, dwelling in the light. And in the light of verse 6, it is relational in that it's as, it can also be spoken of as walking as he walked, which is a beautiful image if you think about it, because I love the notion of walking in the presence with Jesus. Paul talked about it a little differently. He didn't talk about it as abiding in the light or walking as he walked, although Paul used the word walk, like in Galatians 5.16, when he said walk after, which is in the footsteps as a disciple of the Holy Spirit. Walk after or according to the Spirit. Or when he said in uh, Ephesians, isn't it 5.18? Be filled with the Spirit, but he contrasted it with wine, so be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Or in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, when he said, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, not the things, the inferior things of the flesh. In other words, Paul had his way of talking about the same spiritual reality that John is talking about. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? What's the very first fruit when you are walking after, setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, when you are filled with the Spirit? It is what? It is love. And then comes all of these beautiful characteristics, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, even self-control. Love is a powerful, powerful potion in our lives, but more importantly, through our lives, when we let God's life dominate our life. And what does it look like? It looks like love. It looks like love. A second thing I want to draw our attention to, by the way, look at uh, chapter 1 John 3, 23 and 24 too. Just put that in your notes. It, it coincides with what I'm saying because it brings in the very spirit. It, 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 a second thing I want to emphasize is there's no cause for stumbling in him. And even if, if you look in your margin, some say well, that, that might refer to the light. It's not in him, it's the light. Well, for me, it's me. There's no cause for stumbling in me when I love you, or you, or you, or you, or you. There's no cause for stumbling in me. That's very important, especially with the kind of person I was. That really helped me, as you can imagine. Because as it was when, when I tried to love people and, and maybe they had a bad burrito the day before and they had kind of a funny green look on their, account, on their face or in their, I took that personally. Now, in 1 John 2.10, I was realizing that when I'm love, when I'm loving as God has loved me, when I'm loving others like that, 
There's no cause for stumbling in me. Because love does the right thing. Love is pure. It's kind. It's good. It's merciful. It's thoughtful. It's sympathetic. It's empathetic. Love is all those things. Love isn't even thinking about self. It's thinking about the other person entirely and how to help, how to constructively influence, how to respond, whatever the situation. Love is, has that, is that me? That's because I'm hyped up. I'm, I'm like a hot mic, you know, and I'm just sparking and popping. But love is doing all of those good things and yet, and this is very important, it doesn't always accomplish its purpose. But it is my moral purpose in life to be more and more loving all the time, regardless of the response. Let me share something. You might want to write this down. I'm going to talk about motives and methods. The motive is love. The method is wisdom. In fact, I would put it this way. When motives are pure, speaking of love, methods can only be improved. <laughs> wisdom. I'll just share very quickly. When we were in South San Francisco, we had Every, we, we had a real rainbow of nationalities in our church. Uh, Samoan, Filipino, Chinese, Japanese, African-American, Latino, and more. And we had a, a group of Filipinos. I, I don't know if I've shared this story with you. I don't want to be like my grandpa repeating myself too often. But um, Mel, who was running this study that met on a weeknight, downstairs in the worship center and, and the office that I used was upstairs above the worship center and he came up uh, I was studying and he came up and he said hey would you come down and uh, pray for our Bible study and I said absolutely but uh, you got to give me a minute I'll be I'll come down in a minute okay great we'll see you in a minute so I come down. Well, anyway, later I find out that a couple of the folks in that group misunderstood because maybe it was a cultural thing, and sometimes that happens. You know, you might reach out to touch someone's head as a true expression of, expression of tenderness, but for... Come on, Lord, I'm hardly moving here. And some, some nationalities would take offense at that. That would be an offensive... And, and, and even when your heart is right, you see. And in this case, a couple of uh, the folks in that study, when Mel told them that I would come down in a minute, they thought I was condescending emotionally and not physically. <laughs> I was not coming downstairs. I was coming down to their level. Well, you can see how things go wrong, even with the best of intentions. But the beautiful thing is what helped to work in my heart was realizing if I take care of the motives, then I don't have to, if, if I find out that the methods are not as pure or, or, or wise as my motives are pure, I can just admit that and say, I can do better or I can fix that or great, now I know better. That's the spirit of love.
And that's how you start to grow. And the more you try to love in all of life's ins and outs, the more you learn about people and how to love better. Love leads to wisdom. So that's the second thing. And the third thing, love is self-affirming. In this verse, verse 10, there's me, there's God, and there's everybody else. That's real life. There's me, the one who's being called by God to love. There's God who's telling me that when I love, I'm abiding in his light. You know what that means to me? Relationally, I'm in the center of his will. I've got his heart pulsing in my heart. And it also includes all of real life, everybody else that I might meet. Boy, that's really affirming. And in that affirmation, God says, you're abiding in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in you. And that helped me to differentiate my motives from my methods and realize that if methods were at stake, it really wasn't me that it was at stake. Before, I had those confused. And when people addressed the method, I took it personally and thought it was a rejection of me. And even more so, you just have your eyes on them and not yourself when you're loving the way God wants you to love. So, boy, there's just some beautiful things in this verse, and I want you to see five things that I think it leads to. First, love leads to dependence upon God. I mentioned 1 John 3, 23 and 24. You can look at that, but God is the source of love and the fruit of the Spirit follows His love. And against such law, against such love there is no law. In fact, that was the power of the great commandment, that the prophets are fulfilled in the great commandment. A second thing, love leads to holiness. I want you to remember this. When we think of holiness, we think of the absence of sin. And sometimes we're trying to get rid of sin. And you know what that does? It just preoccupies us with sin. It preoccupies us with our failures, our faultiness, and sometimes it causes us to feel so lousy before the Lord, you know. If we're hard to convince that he's really forgiven us, it can cause us to feel lousy before the Lord, and we'll take ourselves out of the game. Football's starting up. And you might be on that 11-man team, and you just run right off the field and take a place on the bench because you are not worthy. See, you'll never come to a place of holiness that way. But if you... Love, love will drive out the sin. And it will. Because love does what is right, what is good. It does what is holy. It's pure. It's not selfish. It seeks God's best for another, which is the definition of, at least that I have arrived at after many years of reflection of the Greek word agape, which is translated, uh, it's the basis of both the verb and the noun love in the New Testament. The most used word love, overwhelmingly so 
seeking God's best for another. Parents understand this. They seek their best for their children. And in that process, they are principled. There's truth that undergirds their actions, even if the child doesn't like it. Love is not wishy-washy. It is principled. It's grounded in God's truth, His values. It's not just a feeling. As if you went out and pulled people in our society, you'd get a, a range of answers. Love, John says in his letter, chapter 4, verse 18, casts out all fear. Now think about this for just a moment. Um, fear is the most powerful emotion, so, so very powerful. And oftentimes, the very person you need to love, the unlovable person, is a person that you fear. And if you really try to love that person and, and step toward them, you'll find out just how much fear there is. Fear will be your number one enemy in loving others. But you cannot wait for the feeling of love. Love is not just a feeling. It's an attitude of the heart, and it is... Those are just peals of thunder reinforcing what I'm saying, it is the power. Uh, love is the actions of God toward others. That's why I say love seeks God's best. And when you begin to love like that, the fear will go. But you, it will not, if you do not pierce it with love and step out in faith and trust, you'll never see that fear d dispelled because fear will be overpower you. But when you press through, knowing I'm going, I know how to be courteous, I know how to be kind, I know how to be loving, and I need to do this sacrificially, and I've got to overlook the offense, or I've got to do it with forgiveness in my heart and a recognition of God's grace and mercy. That's all God's love, the very love that he's shown to you. And when you start to do that in word and deed, that becomes your method, the fear will disappear and you will start to see the power of God in your normal and everyday kinds of relationships, and you'll see that over time, and you'll see growth and change in your own character. That leads to a third thing really quickly. Love leads to courage. I already mentioned uh, uh, it casts out fear. Uh, love leads to unity and community. Do you realize that without God's love as demonstrated in Jesus Christ, there would be no church? Every person in the church is introduced to that church through the love of Jesus Christ as demonstrated on the cross. And that church is maintained, that relationship between a diverse body of people, the whole range of oddities in life is unified and becomes a community because of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, His love for me, and that love exchanged between us and shown to the world. Shown to the world. What if the world, just imagine if the world continued 
to stumble and be critical of, of what we believe, but they envied our love. And finally, it leads to emulation, to influence and inspiration. It's not just, it's not because of who we are, but that is the thing, see. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And then what did he say? He said, my disciples should be known for their love. Why? Because that is the purest and most invincible proof of God and his love. Well, I don't know who God is telling you to love. It could be literally your sister or brother at home. You know that the Lord cares for them too? How about husband or wife? How about neighbor and others? People near and people that we have yet to meet, that we may meet even today. Maybe it's someone at school who sits alone, that others belittle because of differences or awkwardness. And you have a chance to walk in the light with that person. What do we, how do we talk about people behind their backs? Are, are we truthful and fair and honest? Do we actually formulate our words and our characterizations with love? And isn't it love that wants to explore whether it's really true? Isn't it love that sympathizes and empathizes and realizes, you know, I've been in a situation like that. Maybe I better not pop off before I know more because I know the sting of what it's like to be misunderstood or talked negatively about. I, listen, you know there's someone I love even though I don't approve of what he does. And there's someone I accept though some of his thoughts and actions revolt me. And there's someone I forgive though he hurts people that I love most. And that person is me. And you could say the same thing because of Jesus Christ. That love isn't just something we accept. It's something we turn around and show to others because he first loved us. And it's in the bread and the cup that we understand that most powerfully this morning as we prepare our hearts to take the bread and the cup. The bread which represents his body sacrificially offered for us and the cup which establishes a new covenant. When you think of covenant, uh, it seems kind of highfalutin, but it's a lot more powerful than a contract. It's built on faithfulness, and it all is about relationship. We enter into a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's our relationship with him and with one another that we share. And that is what we do celebrate. We remember at this time, we get our heads straight and our hearts straight as we look at this bread and we remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross and as we take this cup. But we don't just look at it. We imbibe it. We actually take it into ourselves. 
That's how important it is that we understand this great truth. And so it was on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. He blessed it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if you will pass uh, the cups toward the aisle, and the guys are going to pick those up for us right now. I had to get a remedial course after the last service, because while they were still picking up the cups, I said, let's stand together. Oh, my goodness. There are certain protocols that have to be observed in this very dangerous business. I want to remind you that we have the opportunity as, as we go to give to the Deacons Fund. It's totally dedicated to helping people in the name and the gospel of Jesus Christ, both within the church family and those who come to us for help. So if you're able to give, give and give generously. Now, if you will, please stand. <clears throat> well, I hope that I was even a little effective because I'll tell you, there are just wonderful things that God will do in your lives as you begin to love through his power in each and every situation, in you and in those situations, and see God at work. It'll put a smile on your face. It'll renew your sense of the power of God in your life as he uses you in situations that maybe others have given up on. There's a line in Shakespeare, the taming of the shrew that says, love wrought these miracles. Well, I don't know what it was talking about at this moment, but that's what I'm talking about. Love wrought these miracles. May God put a smile on your face and in your heart as you walk with him in love today. God bless you.